0: If you have a Bible, then you can open that up. We'll be in the book of Luke. We're back in Luke. We missed Luke. Now we've returned. Uh, Palm Sunday was the last time we were in Luke together. And so in light of that, let me do a little bit of review as we're getting started here. So, Uh, I'm not going to go all the way back to Luke 1.1, but I will go back to Luke 9.51, because in Luke 9.51, Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. He sets his face toward Jerusalem, and really from that point in Luke's gospel uh, all the way to now, Jesus is moving toward the cross uh, intentionally and he's really been doing that throughout his whole life but at that moment in Luke 9:51, where he sets his attention on Jerusalem uh, he is laser focused to get there and to accomplish his mission and we know what his mission is he told us earlier in Luke 19 the son of man came to seek and to save the lost that's why Jesus has come to the earth he is going to go to Jerusalem He is going to die a substitutionary death. He is going to save his people from their lostness. He is going to rescue them from their sins. And he predicted all of this at the end of chapter 18, uh, where he says to the 12, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So even though they didn't understand it, the reality is, is that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. He is going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples there. He is going to be turned over to the Romans by the Jewish authorities. He will die, and he will rise again, and this is God's great plan to save his people from their sins. The last thing that we saw in our time together in Luke on Palm Sunday was Jesus entering into the city on the foal of a donkey just as the prophet Zechariah said that he would and as he approached the city he wept over the city because he was coming to make peace between God and man there in the city but they couldn't recognize the things that make for peace they couldn't recognize that everything that the prophets had foretold was coming true and that it was coming true to the end that they would be saved right it was coming true in the sense that he is going to die for them he is going to resurrect and he's going to offer them eternal life but the people in the city who had the prophets and had the law can't even recognize that they don't even see it because they are blinded by their own lack of spiritual understanding and they're going to reject the very plan that God has gifted to his people for salvation and Jesus weeps over this and that weeping sets the context for what he does in the temple at the end of chapter 19 so let me read for us there Uh, Luke 19, starting in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for the people were hanging on to his words. Father, thank you for the Bible and uh, for the um, the trustworthiness of it, we submit ourselves, Lord, to its authority this morning. And I pray that as we see the authority of your son as he came into the temple and he drove out those who were misusing it and he uh, proclaimed himself as the Messiah uh, who can save in a way that the man-made uh, religions of the world could never save. Um, Father, as we read about that, I pray that we would be submissive to your son's authority as the Messiah, that we would consider uh, our own lives and uh, we would consider uh, whether or not we have peace with you through your son. I pray the gospel would be clear and I pray, Lord, that the invitation for salvation would be clear and I pray the application for all of our hearts, Lord, would be clear. So work through your word in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's set the scene here. When verse forty-five says that he entered the temple, Luke is referring to the temple grounds. Okay, so he, he's not necessarily referring to the temple proper as you would think of it. We'll get there. He's talking about the temple grounds. The temple grounds uh, were a. It was a massive complex. It was huge. Uh, thousands of people could come there and worship at one time, and it was built for that. The temple complex had an outer wall. And then it had inner walls that separated the different areas. The largest area inside of that outer wall was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was as far as a non-Jewish man or woman could go in the temple complex. If a non-Jewish person... Uh, a Gentile person tried to go beyond and and get into any of those uh, interior areas. If they went beyond the court of the Gentiles, they were putting themselves in danger of punishment by death. It was very serious. So you did not go uh, past the court of the Gentiles if you were a Gentile. The next area... Uh, was the Court of Women. And so if you were a Jewish woman, uh, you, this was as far as you could go. So from the Court of the Gentiles, you went through what they called the Gate Beautiful, and uh, that's as far as Jewish women could progress into the temple complex. And then there was Nicanor's Gate, which was a huge gate made of heavy Corinthian bronze. They say that it would take 20 grown men uh, working together just to open this gate. Jewish men could go through this gate and enter into what was called the court of the Israelites. So we got the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, and you have the court of the Israelites. And then from there, things get very, very exclusive because you had the court of the priests. Israelite men who were not priests could not enter. However, they would look through a little doorway and they could actually see the priests in there making the sacrifices, uh, offering up the sacrifices for the people. So they could see that, but if you were not a priest, you couldn't go in um, past uh, the court of the Israelites into the court of the priests. And then inside the court of the priests, in the center, in the back center of the temple complex you had what is known as the most holy place and this was the true temple the holy of holies the innermost the sacred area it was a perfect cube in the rear of the heart of the temple complex the place where the high priest would go once a year to burn incense and the sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as jesus enters the temple in verse 45 he does not enter the holy of holies We know that because when the Holy of Holies is talked about, a different Greek word is used. The Greek word being used here tells us that Jesus has entered into the court of the Gentiles. And what does he find there? He does not find a place for Gentiles to pray to God and to worship God. That is what he should have found there. That is what the court of Gentiles existed for. Instead, what Jesus found was a center for commerce. He found a marketplace. The priests were making money from the animals that were sold in the temple court. The biggest cut would go to Annas or Ananias, the high priest. The middlemen were in the courtyard doing his bidding and they would get a smaller payout. So they were very happy to have the priests reject the animals brought from home because then the people would be forced to buy animals on site. And if you bought the animals on site, well, the priest got a cut of that money. So you can see how this was a racket, right? You didn't even bother to show up with some cattle from home for sacrifice because you knew the priest would look at your cattle and go, "Uh, the sheep's not good enough. You're going to have to go buy one from from the temple marketplace. You're going to have to buy one from us because we reject yours. And if you bought one from them, well, they got some of the money. This was such a lucrative business that when Josephus, the great Jewish historian, wrote about Ananias and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who were making the most off of this racket, he called Ananias the great procurer of money. And so Ananias's like historical reputation was that he always found a way to get rich. It was a scam. It was a ripoff. It was a good old fashioned religious shakedown. And as Jesus enters into the court of the Gentiles, he starts driving them out. So we get more details from this from Mark. Mark says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, what a scene this is. Jesus comes in there, got a throng of people with him at this point, and he starts flipping over tables and chairs. There's probably coins flying all over the place. And then more than that, there would have been an endless parade of cattle coming through the temple. They would have just been walking these cattle through the courtyard of the Gentiles because people were buying them. And so, as soon as one was bought, let's get another one in here. So there would have been just a train of animals coming through there. Um, if you ever seen like any of the old paintings of like Noah ushering everybody into all the animals into the ark, like in my mind, I just imagine a bunch of you know sheep uh, just just coming through there in droves. He stops the parade. Okay, he's like, you know, um, uh, a police officer out here, if you come by when school's getting out at 3.30 in the afternoon on a weekday here at, uh, in Seaford, he's like the police officer out there stopping traffic. He's like, it's no more. I mean, we're not going to have any more of these animals coming through here. And so he, he stops it. He halts the entire scene. This is not the first time we've seen this from Jesus in his life. In fact, Jesus' earthly ministry is bookended by him causing two scenes in the temple. The first one comes in John 2, at the beginning of his ministry. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So once again, it's at Passover. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, so this time he had a weapon, he drove them all out of the temple with, sheep and, with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Nothing in Jesus' life is on accident. Nothing in Jesus' life is happenstance. It's not coincidental, it's not an accident that his ministry begins and ends with him causing a scene in the temple. And so why did he do this? Why bookend his ministry in this way? What is he saying to the world? What is he saying to the disciples, to the Jewish authorities? What is he saying to us? Well, in order to understand it, I want to consider three scriptures I believe Jesus has in mind as he turns over these tables. Two of the scriptures he quotes, so we know he had them in mind. And then I think there's a third one there that is implied, and and I'll show you why when we get to it. But first of all, let's look at these Old Testament references we do have in Luke 19. Jesus looks at those who are selling the animals, who are participating in the scam, and the first thing he says to them is, my house shall be a house of prayer." My house shall be a house of prayer. This is from Isaiah 56, verse 7, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. My holy mountain is a reference to the place of God's presence where his people will meet with him and worship him. And so obviously, the Jewish people would come to connect Isaiah 56 to the temple, the place where uh, the people would go to meet with God and worship him. Generations of Jewish people would connect this passage to Solomon's temple, the epicenter of Jewish worship. Notice that also in this passage um the lord says through his prophet that his house should be a house of prayer for all peoples all peoples not just jewish people all peoples gentile peoples and this idea is very much in line with what solomon said when he dedicated the temple in first kings 8 it says likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people israel comes from a far country for your name's sake for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that, listen, all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name." So in Isaiah's words, which are connected to the temple, and in Solomon's words, which is the dedication of the temple, we have a clear desire from the heart of God for the people of all nations to worship him, to fear him, to revere him. And what that tells us is that when it came to the temple, part of the purpose of the temple was Gentile evangelism part of the purpose of the temple is that people who were not Jewish would be drawn in and that they too would come to know the living God the way that Naaman comes to know him when you read the scriptures. Um, Naaman was a Syrian commander in the army and yet he came to know who the Lord was. The way that Nebuchadnezzar came to some understanding of who the Lord was despite the fact that he wasn't Jewish. There's a host of people in the Old Testament, Gentiles, that we see recognizing who the Lord is recognizing his power and part of the purpose of the temple was that more Gentiles would come to know the Lord it was designed in such a way where they could have their own place in Jerusalem to worship they could have their own court where they could come and they could meet with God And the nations which were scattered at Babel for their pride could repent and find forgiveness and come together and worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. In fact, part of Jesus' mission as he came to seek and to save the lost was also to divide, to eliminate the dividing walls of the temple, figuratively and literally. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. hostility the Gentiles were far off they were uncircumcised there were people in Jerusalem who thought that before a Gentile could come to faith in Christ they needed to be circumcised so there was like a prerequisite for salvation and the Apostle Paul fought against that along with the other leaders of the church but the Gentiles were uncircumcised separated from Israel, separated from God. They had no hope in the world. But Christ came and died, and he brings the Gentiles near by his blood. The blood of bulls and goats could not bring them near, but the perfect blood of the Lamb did bring them near and brought them so near that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is torn down. Torn down figuratively. Meaning that there's no reason for Jews and Gentiles in the church to be at odds with one another because they both know the love of Christ. They both have the Spirit dwelling in them. They shouldn't be fighting, right? So torn down figuratively, but Jesus also came to literally tear down that wall in the temple. He came to say there's no more separation of Jew and Gentile here. The blood of bulls and goats could not take the Gentiles past the court of the Gentiles into the the innermost, right? Right? But the blood of Christ takes the Gentiles all the way into the most holy place and they can be in the presence of God just like a Jewish man or woman can be in the presence of God. And now we don't have two men anymore. We don't have two bodies anymore. We don't have Jew and Gentile anymore. With the dividing wall of hostility torn down, Jesus has made one man, Jew and Gentile, together under the head that is Jesus in his church, one body. Praise God. All of these scripture references and Jesus' quotation of Isaiah 56, verse 7, gives us a truth I want you to mark down this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, God's promises are for all peoples. This is one of the great realities of scripture. That God has attached his plan to Abraham and Abraham's family and Abraham's descendants, particularly one descendant, right, the God-man Jesus Christ, but God also beckons for the Gentiles to draw near to him and to find forgiveness for their sin and to worship him just like Abraham's family. In fact, by faith, they're a part of Abraham's spiritual family. And if you don't believe this is God's heart, just read Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God has a global vision for His own worship. He wants his way to be known in all of the earth, his saving power to be known among all the nations, that all the peoples would praise him, that then all the nations would be glad and sing for joy. He doesn't just judge Israel with equity, he judges all the peoples with equity. So we're going to have a meeting right after church, our missions leadership team is meeting. Why? Because. We want to prioritize missions. We want to keep uh, missions at the front. We want to make sure missions is important because we want to be in on God's own global vision for his worship in his name. Uh, why did the Gideons spread the gospel all around the world by taking the New Testament and putting it in people's hands? Because they want to be a part of God's uh, global mission to see all peoples worship him. Israel's passionate spirit and truth worship of the Lord should have caused the Gentiles to want to draw near. In many ways, that was the point of the court of the Gentiles. A place where they could come near, be so close to the aroma of of worship that they would want to know the Lord, that they too would want to draw near, that it would be a house of prayer for all peoples. But the religious authorities had taken the Gentile court and turned it into some sort of TJ Maxx for animal sacrifices and the Jewish leadership were doing the exact opposite of what they should have been doing instead of making sure the Gentiles could come and have a place where they could seek the Lord where they could find the Lord where they could pray where they could be worshipers they had turned the court of the Gentiles into a den of thieves not a house of prayer which brings us to our second quotation a house of prayers were made a den of robbers that phrase That term, den of robbers, that you see at the end of verse 46 comes from Jeremiah 7. And to really understand the weight of the words, you got to take yourself back to Jeremiah's time, 600 years before Jesus is even born. Jeremiah 7, 2 says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word. So Jesus is quoting from a passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is standing up at the temple, and speaking okay that that again nothing's a coincidence with Jesus he does this on purpose he picks a very temple-centric passage and and imagine um the the situation here okay when, when Jeremiah is standing in the gate of the Lord's house he would have had his as he stood at the temple two huge pillars on each side of him and all of the worshipers are are coming right? They're drawing near to offer up sacrifices to God, to worship God. And this is what Jeremiah is to say to them as they come in. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. The people needed to amend their deeds because they had an attitude of hypocrisy they thought they could go to the temple go through the motions not really worship just cross the t's dot the i's and everything would be fine they could go back to living lives where they really didn't regard the lord they didn't care about the lord they didn't think about the lord but as long as they kept going and performing the ceremonial aspects of the law well god is placated God won't care, God won't discipline, God won't punish. So Jeremiah corrects it, he questions them. He says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. They thought they were worshipers. Jeremiah says, if your plan is to come here, to go through the ceremonial aspects of the law, and then go back out there into the world and go right back to your stealing and your murdering and to your adultery and to your lying and to your idolatry, if that's your plan, you're not a worshiper, you're a robber, you're a thief. Because what you're doing is you're trying to steal glory from the Lord. And this is essentially the state of temple worship in Jesus' day as well. It's in the same state as it was in Jeremiah's day. The place where God's name should have been honored by the Gentiles was turned into a courtyard to run a game, to run scams. The place where sin should be confessed is the place where sin is being committed An area designated for prayer was transformed into an area dominated by price tags. So as Jesus turns over the tables in the temple, he's not just turning them over because the sellers are ripping off the buyers. He wasn't just flipping them over because of the disgusting schemes of the money-hungry priesthood. It was that, but I think he's flipping over the whole system. He's throwing the old system on its head, the whole system of works righteousness that Abraham's religion of faith had been, had been disformed into by the religious leadership. A system that said, your heart can be far from God, but you can claim eternal safety in the name of doing good works. A system that assumed God was so weak you could placate Him with your niceties while ignoring Him in your heart. And he was making a statement with his quotation of Jeremiah 7, and I'll make it our second point. I believe Jesus is saying to them that God's name must be honored by any peoples who truly want to worship him. That you cannot come and do one thing and then go live another and think that is true worship. He's letting every worshiper in the temple know if you really want peace with God, then you're not going to find it if your hearts are still far from him. You can't steal glory from God and then claim to be a God-glorifying worshiper who is at peace with the Lord. See, your heart either ascribes glory to God or it tries to steal glory from God. But the worst kind of religion is the kind where you steal his glory while trying to claim that you ascribe glory to him. That's hypocrisy. And Jesus was flipping that system on its head and he is driving it out of his father's house because it has no place there. Now let's look at the last couple of verses. Jesus basically says, that, uh, or Luke basically says Jesus takes over the temple, right? And, and then we see in verses 47 and 48, he comes in, he flips over the tables, drives them all out, and then suddenly in verse 47, he's teaching daily in the temple. I, I absolutely love this. He starts holding court. He takes over. We're done with your system of works righteousness, and so let me tell you the truth. Let me teach you the true meaning of the law and the prophets. And, and the leaders, they hate it. They want them out of there. They don't want them saying these things in the temple, but they can't do anything because all the people that are there are listening to him and they are hanging on every word. There's no accusation they can bring against them. And Jesus doesn't leave for a bit. He's not there, but so long because this is the last week of his earthly ministry. So he's not there for so long. At the most, he comes and goes for two days, maybe a day and a half, but he's there. Luke 20, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. Luke 21, verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, meaning the the temple treasury. Luke 21, 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, and then at the end of Luke 21, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, And and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So for... At least a day and a half or a couple of days, Jesus is coming and going. He's going to sleep at Olivet, comes back, teaches in the temple. Sleeps at Olivet, comes back, teaches in the temple. We have about a day and a half we, we don't really account for in Jesus' last week. And I think this is what he's doing during that time. He's taken over the temple. He's kicked these scoundrels out and he's just like, this place is mine. And I will spend my last couple of days here showing you that it's mine. And I think Jesus had a scripture in mind that Luke doesn't quote, but it's just so hard to ignore. And Jesus, being the perfect embodiment of the scriptures, had to know he's fulfilling this. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you will seek, that's not John the Baptist, right? He's not the Lord. The Lord whom you, will, uh, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord will be like a refiner's fire in the temple. Bible commentator John Nolan says Jesus, in conscious fulfillment of Malachi 3 1 and 2, is coming as Lord to his temple to purge like a refiner's fire. And if that's true, then the same way that Jesus rode on a donkey, totally aware of his fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he is now purging the temple, fully aware of Malachi's prophecy. Jesus has a special relationship with the temple throughout Luke's gospel. His cousin's birth was announced by the angel Gabriel outside of the most holy place in Luke 1. In Luke 2, Jesus is held and blessed by Simeon in the courts of the temple. When his parents can't find him at the end of Luke 2, Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And then you get the scene of Jesus' temptation where the enemy, Satan, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, to the highest point of the temple. And he says, just jump off, and surely God's angels will protect you. And then everyone's going to know that you're the Messiah, because you jumped off and you didn't die. And Jesus responds by saying, it's a sin to put the Lord God to the test, and he wouldn't do it. And that wasn't just a rejection of testing God, that was a rejection of any notion that he would reveal his identity as the Messiah before the Father called him to do it. But here in these two verses, as Jesus fulfills Malachi's prophecy, he is revealing his identity and it's not happening on Satan's timetable, it's happening on the Father's timetable. And it's happening at the temple, but he's not jumping off the temple, he's taking over the temple, and he is saying as he does it, as he suddenly enters the temple, and as he purges it with a refiner's fire, he's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Lord, and this place is mine. Mine by purging it and taking it over and teaching in the temple. It was one big statement from Christ about who he is. So last point for this morning, number three, God's Son is the promised Messiah King. And if there were any doubts about who he is claiming to be, he's putting them to rest. He is the Messiah King, and he stands in the temple teaching. We don't know exactly what he taught there, But one thing we do know is that the one who's standing in the temple teaching, the temple actually existed to point to him. The temple actually existed to make the point that he is the Messiah King. The temple was the center of worship, but its entire existence was a signpost pointing to the identity of Christ. And the reality is, is that Jesus does for us all the things the temple was set up to do. The temple was the place to draw near to the presence of God, but in Christ we have God with us. The temple was the place for the people to have access to God, but in Christ we have access to God all the time. The temple was the place for atoning sacrifice to be made, but in Christ we have our final sacrifice. The temple was the place where the priests were to be mediators for the people to God. But in Christ, we have the ultimate high priest, the ultimate mediator who reconciles us to the Father, who represents us to the Father. And in the end, the Scriptures make it clear that the Messiah King is our true temple. John says in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty in the Lamb." Christ is sovereign over the temple. The temple existed to point to him, not the reverse of that. So when he shows up and he drives the money changers out and he drives the cattle out and he starts teaching, he's making that point emphatically. I am the Messiah. This place exists for me. I am sovereign over it. It is mine. We wouldn't feel comfortable saying that about anybody but God, but he is God. And since he is God, we do not hesitate to say that the temple existed for Jesus, to point to him and to proclaim him the one true ultimate temple for the people of God. This scene that Jesus causes, the scene that he breaks up with his righteous indignation, it's a scene consistent with man-made religion. God's promises are for all peoples who claim them by repentance and faith. God's name must be honored by any peoples who truly want to worship Him. God's Son is the promised Messiah King, and all the promises of God find their yes in Him. This is the only pathway to eternal peace. To agree with God that your sin is evil, to turn away from it, to turn toward Him in faith, And having been forgiven of your sin and been given eternal life, we honor His name by worshiping Him. By loving Him. By obeying Him. And we will spend the rest of our time on this earth doing this. And we will spend the rest of our eternal lives doing this. Worshiping and serving Him forever. But man-made religion is definitively not that. It is a system set up to try to short-circuit God's plan of salvation. A system where paid-for piety can earn you pardon. Buy your animal, pay your price, and then just go back to living for yourself. But this has never been what God is after. In in, uh, Micah 6 verse 8 The prophet says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God has always wanted worshipers. Worshipers who express their adoration for Him in the way not only that they deal with Him, but how they deal with everybody else around them. People who will love their neighbors, but who will also love the Lord each day. And so if the Son of God was to walk into the courts of your life this morning, would he find that? Would he find a spirit and truth worshiper who walks humbly with God and loves justice and loves kindness, who executes justice and loves kindness? Would he find feet that are eager to walk with him? Or would he find a heart that is going through the motions of religion, the motions of piety in order to receive pardon? Would he find somebody that loves him or loves the freedom from guilt that being religious seems to bring to the conscience, even though there's actually no love for the Lord? God wants you to enjoy His promises, and God wants you to honor His name, and God wants you to know Him through His Son, the Messiah King. But have you set up a system of religion that probably has the appearance of Christianity? You're probably not practicing some form of Islam, you know what I'm saying? You probably wouldn't be here this morning if that was the case. So it's got, it's got the appearance of Christianity, but in reality, you've got a bunch of tables crowding the place where there should be true worship. You go to church, you sing the songs, you hear the sermon, you give the money, you have some nice conversation about the sports and weather. But when 1115 hits, you just go back to living life how you want it. You don't read your Bible, you don't really pray when you're outside of this place. You come here, you go through the ceremonial aspects of the law as you understand it, and then you hope it's enough to placate God enough that it'll still be favorable towards you in your life and that you can pretty much live how you want. Friend, I'm going to tell you, you're suppressing the truth of your lostness with religiosity in hopes that you can relieve yourself of some guilt along the way. There's no eternal life in that. There's no salvation in that. God is something so much better for you than that. Man-made religion is miserable, but in God's plan, we don't suppress the truth, we submit to it. We don't try to relieve ourselves of guilt. We have guilt removed from us. And we're not merely religious, we're worshipers. And I hope you want that. I hope you say, I want a life where I don't suppress the truth. I I live in the truth and walk in it. I submit to the the authority of God's truth. I I want a life where I'm not just waking up every day trying to find ways to, to comfort myself and relieve my guilt. I'd like a life where my guilt is actually removed from me, supernaturally, by the Lord. I want a life where I don't just go through the motions, I really every day walk with the Lord, I worship Him in spirit and truth. Well, if you want that, there may be some tables that need to get violently flipped over this morning. Tables of self-righteousness, tables of a tarnished witness, tables of empty worship, all the same tables he was flipping over 2,000 years ago. So you can either hang on every word and submit your life to him, or you can react like the religious authority here and just try to keep driving him out and chasing him out. If you stop fighting and you stop trying to do things your own way, what you'll find is that the promises of God hold real life and joy for you, that the death and resurrection of Christ opens the door for you to truly be able to honor him with your life, you'll find that his son is exactly who he said he was. Not just today, the day of your salvation, but every single day after. The band's going to come and and lead us in uh, one final song. But as they come, I, I hope that if the word has struck you this morning, that you'll respond to it. If you've just been going through the motions, then today is the day for a new motion, and that's the motion of repentance. To, to, to stop just checking the boxes and, and then going back to, to living for yourself and for your flesh, but instead to truly Say to God, I'm done living life my own way. I want to live life the way that you want me to live it. And to repent. To repent means you agree with God your sin is evil and you turn toward him in faith. To put your trust, not in your own ability to to do good religious acts. To put your trust in Jesus, who kept the law for you perfectly. Because if you think you're keeping the law and you're doing a pretty good job, trust me, you're not. He kept the law for you perfectly. And then he died a sinner's death for you. He died and took all the guilt that should be yours. It was placed on his head. And then he rose from the grave to crush sin and death once and for all for his people. He offers you the gift of forgiveness and eternal life as a result. Trade in whatever man-made religion you've been practicing for the true gospel this morning. You'll find real peace and joy there. And you'll find real salvation and eternal life there. If you want to know more about this, you can uh, email us uh, or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. I would love to speak with you about it. I know Pastor David or Pastor Ben would love to. We've got a host of people here who know how to lead somebody to the Lord. Uh, Talk to somebody or reach out to us through uh, that email if you would like to know more about having a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we can come to you just as we are, that we do not have to um, pretty ourselves up first. You take us just as we are, with all the warts of man-made religion that we have uh, tried to practice, with all of our our sinfulness, uh, Lord, with all of our rebellion. um, You take us as we are, Lord, and uh, you wash us clean, and you save us, and you give us a new start And you don't just do that on the day of our salvation, God, but even as we come to you and we confess our sin to you each day, you give us second chances, new second chances every day. We thank you for your grace. But, Father, draw uh, draw people to yourself, Lord, that are far from you. Even if they've been religious, God, if their hearts are far from you, draw them to yourself and show them the sort of religion that you truly require and that you want. And uh, I pray, Lord, a true fear of you and love of you would be born in their hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.